Hello and welcome to Profiles. I'm Annie Corrigan. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, writers, and community leaders to get to know the person behind the persona. Today, I'm excited to welcome Marsha Veldman into the studios. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Annie. It's a pleasure being here. Marsha Veldman is an advocate for food justice and security, sustainability, and community development in Bloomington, Indiana. She's worked for the city of Bloomington during the last 16, almost 17 years as the point person and coordinator of the Bloomington Community Farmers Market. She's also the founder of Green Drinks Bloomington. She co-chairs the Green Sanctuary Task Force at the Unitarian Universalist Church. And she's worked with the Hoosier Hills Food Bank, Mother Hubbard's Cupboard, and Hilltop Education Foundation. She is a very busy woman, I think should be the last line on your biography there. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but you, it's all good stuff. How do you find the time, first of all? You know, I really do try to have a balance in my life. I really think it's important to uh, take time to, you know, nurture your spirit, spend time with friends, watch movies, things like that. But I'll have to say right now it's feeling like I'm not getting quite as much time in the woods as I would like and a little more time behind the laptop. But One thing we didn't mention in your bio is that you, you're also a grower. You have Meadowlark Farm. So tell me what's in the ground right now. Right now I don't have too much in the ground, which is probably fortunate since I've had frost the last two nights. So my my selling season for Meadowlark Farm is generally about mid-July through March. So it's a little bit unusual compared to, I guess, most growers. So I more focus on later season crops and storage crops. But I have my uh, spring kitchen garden in and the peas and fava beans and lettuce and arugula are just all looking great. It's been... Uh, such a different spring from last year. Yeah. So last year it was warm early and then really, really dry all growing season. Now, as you said, we've gotten frost in, you know, May. Temperatures have been really cold and it's been wet, wet, really wet. Looking ahead the next couple months, what does this mean for you as a grower? I really need the ground to dry up a little bit, which is like a really hard thing to say after last year because I need to till so I can get in the summer crops. If that can happen in the next week or so, then I'm in good shape, at least for the start of the season. You know, I always have this sense of like, oh, well, if spring's like this, then summer will be like that. But it really doesn't seem to be true. So it's hard to say what it's going to be like. The weather seems more variable than ever. And I, you know, my perspective is really short, but I hear that from people who've been growing for 80 years, too. When you talk to the growers who are at the farmer's market, what are they saying? The people who are selling food now, how are they able to grow in this weather? It depends a lot on what it is they're growing. And I guess, are you referring to just this year in particular or in general? Just this, this year. This year. Yeah, a lot of people are having a hard time getting crops in the ground because even as you go further north, it's even wetter than it is here. You know, for the fruit tree folks, 
They are very happy with the way this spring is unfolding because the the trees are just full of fruit. So that's really good. Um, anyone who does the the late season crops, you know, it's still lots of time for things to unfold. So it amazes me so many people choose to to be farmers because. You know, not only are you de- dealing with the, the vagaries of weather, which is just like, all right, let's see. Then it's like how you're going to be able to sell everything and just the amount of hard work that's involved. So I'm always really grateful that there are people out there who, who want to do it. We're going to talk a little bit more about the difficulties that small local farmers have to deal with, mm-hmm. getting their food into the ground and then into consumers' hands. So we'll get to that a little right. later in the show. So one more question about this weather. You know, I just can't get over how weird it's been. Should we be worried as consumers of local food? You know, in the long run, I would say yes. I would say yes. We should be concerned because um, it is getting more challenging to to grow food in this area because the droughts are longer, the heat is more prevalent in the summer. As far as this particular season, I don't know the answer to that one. But long term, yeah, we we're living in the age of climate disruption, and in uh, this area, while you know the projections show it faring better than many places around the world, we're still going to be facing some serious challenges. So as we mentioned earlier, you've served as the coordinator for the Bloomington Community Farmers Market. This is now your 17th year doing that. Give us the specs of the market. How many vendors do you have on a typical Saturday? How many people come to the market? As far as numbers of vendors, I guess the place to start is to say we have three different types of vendors, um, and they kind of each participate in a special, unique way and have different guidelines for participation. And as most people know, the vast majority are the farm vendors. And this year we signed about 140 farm vendor contracts. So it's a big roster of farmers who um, have the opportunity to sell at market this year. Not everybody comes every week. Um, For example, right now we have someone who's from Oaktown, Indiana, and just grows asparagus. So she will be here while asparagus is in season, and then we won't see her till next spring again. And then we have people who just do mums or who, you know, just grow small amounts of things and show up when they may. On a typical Saturday, we averaged over 90 farm vendor stalls rented. So then in addition to the farm vendors, there's the prepared food vendors that are primarily on the the Beeline Market Plaza. And this year, there are 10 spaces, but we have 11 vendors. Um, There's the Juice Bar folks and Flower Power are sharing a space. And then we have kind of an interesting situation. It was pretty unique. The kettle corn woman, Chris Fosters, uh-huh. she has participated as a farm vendor for a long time. And last year she had crop failure and no longer has popcorn that she has raised and so no longer qualifies as a farm vendor. But um, 
because of some unique circumstances, like her big greasy pot can't be on the Beeline Plaza, she was selected as a prepared food vendor over in her own little space down by the rest of the farm vendors. Um, So she's new in that role this year. Her popcorn, she ended up with a handful of bushels, and usually she has enough popcorn to serve the farmer's market customers and some festivals that she goes to for an entire year. Do, I mean, we have the drought to blame for that, or was it a disease? It was, a it was the drought. Well, let's get back to the market then. How many people do you serve on a typical Saturday? On a typical Saturday, it's I think we're averaging now over 6,000 people. Yeah, and we actually, we last year we started switching the way we calculate the numbers of people. We, for many years, have done where we walk a certain pattern around the market, same pattern every time, and count every hour on the half hour. And we have worked on the assumption that most people stay for a half hour. Because the market's grown so much and we've added all the prepared food vendors, we've decided it was time to kind of check in with customers and see how long are they really staying? So now we calculate that it's a 45-minute visit. So our numbers used to sound higher, but I think now they're more accurate. <laughs> 6,000 people, 90 vendors on a typical Saturday. This seems like a really substantial farmer's market. We're very proud of it here in the Bloomington community. I don't know if you can speak to national trends, but where do we stand compared to other markets around the country? We are really fortunate. I think this market is really one of the outstanding markets around the country, not not just in size, but also in in the focus on the farmer, where we really um, put a lot of emphasis on making this a market that is accessible to farmers. We still have not turned any farmers away for you know, as long as they're growing what they have in Indiana, they're welcome to sell at this market, which is kind of unique for a market the size that we are. And we really do place a high value, the farmers and the customers, on it really being food that's raised by the farmer. So those things, um, you know, there are other markets around the country that um, have that value as well. But I think that focus and the size of it and just the beauty of the location and the fact that we have the space to do many events associated with the market. Like I know you've been a salsa contest judge in the past. So it really is a pretty outstanding market. And I think I say that, but, you know, what I really, really value is how it serves this community. It's neat that it receives national recognition, but what's really important is how it meets the needs of the farmers and customers in this community. I want to talk about how it's changed since you've been involved. Before we get to that, I asked for questions that people wanted to ask you. And uh, someone who goes to the market regularly wants to know if there's any check or balance that you guys do on the vendors to make sure that they are indeed growing their food on their farm in Indiana? You're nodding your head, so there must be. There is. Yeah, we um, we start by having an application that farmers fill out, ask some in-depth information about where they're growing, what they're growing, what processor, if they're using meat, they use, 
information that's that's just generally good for us to know. But if there's a question as to whether or not they are producing what they're selling at the farmer's market, it provides us with a lot of background information to start with. We do go out on farm inspections. We probably average a couple a year. And sometimes the impetus for that is you know, hearing from another farmer that they kind of question whether or not someone is raising what they sell. Once in a while, it's a customer. Sometimes it's coming from us. You know, we'll see something unusual. When we do go out on farm inspections, they are really in-depth. We really, you know, want want for customers and other farmers to feel assured that everyone's playing by the same rule book and that when we say you are buying from the farmer, it's a true statement. Someone else wanted to know about your SNAP program at the market where you accept food stamps. This is a really exciting program. Uh, Please tell us about that. We're really excited, especially about the developments that are taking place this year. The market in 2007 started accepting food stamp benefits, and I think we were the – well, I know we were the first one in Indiana, and it it took a bit of work to, to sort through it because at that point in time, the USDA is who you submit your application through, really wasn't focused on farmers' markets very much, so the questions were really off base for what we were doing, and but it took a little sorting out, but – you know, something that um, as a department and with the Farmers Market Advisory Council, we really valued the idea of increasing that access to low-income people. So so we've been doing that since 2007. And this past winter, we received a grant for $20,000 from a small foundation and um, have been able to double food stamp benefits. So a uh, person who receives food stamp benefits can come to market and they use their electronic benefits transfer card, the little thing that looks like a credit card or debit card, and um, can transfer however much money they want to out of their food stamp allotment to receive market bucks, which are the vouchers then they can shop with the farmers. And this year, up to $18 of that transfer will be doubled. So someone who transfers 18 gets $36 in market bucks. And it's being done in other places around the country. And what they see is the use increases a lot. And that certainly is what we've seen in our first six weeks. Uh, Both the numbers of people coming and the total dollar amount has just I don't know the actual numbers yet, but it's something like tripled. But then what also has been seen is that once that incentive is removed, that food stamp use continues at a higher rate. And so, you know, once people make it a part of their lifestyle and their food budget, that they value it and will continue once the incentive isn't there. Give people information. For those folks who have SNAP benefits, how can they find out more about how to use it at the market? You can go to the market website, which is bloomington.in.gov backslash farmers market. 
And um, there's information there. Hopefully in the next couple weeks, we'll also have a video, which I am kind of excited about because sometimes people have heard about the farmer's market, but there's a level of intimidation. It's like, well, where do I park? And when I get there, how does it work? I've had people ask me, do I write a check at the end to to the market? You know, they aren't aware that you pay with each farmer. So I think the video will help make it clear how the process works and maybe demystify some of um, what shopping at the farmer's market looks like. So in the next couple of weeks, we hope to have that up. And we'll certainly, you know, work with nonprofits in the area to get it distributed to uh, to the people who are interested. Start accepting food stamps 2007 got the salsa contest, tomato tasting. There's uh, a fair of the arts that happens once a month. Is that correct? Yes. yes. Surely we didn't start off here 17 years ago. <laughs> Go back to your first couple years with the market. What was that like? Well, when I started with the market, it was 1997, and the market was over by the library in the Monroe County History Center in what now looks like a tiny little parking lot to me. And that was the last year at that site. And I will say I was really intimidated by the process of moving the market to Showers Common. Well, I was really excited. I also, you know, was just feeling really responsible, like, oh, my gosh, this is just a huge space. And what if it doesn't work out well? (laughs) But it really was a remarkable opportunity um, to be able to, to grow the market. And it has grown a lot. You know, what changes? Yeah, the events at market are a big change. Um, you know, the, the previous space certainly did not allow for for that type of thing. And, um, and I think those have become real signatures of the market and kind of turn it into, into a festival, a place where people really, you know, spend some time. And a lot of them are learning a lot about growing food, about preparing food, about what's going on in the community. So there's that. A Fair of the Arts, the Art and Craft Fair, came in in the early 2000s and I think has just been a real nice addition to the market and opportunity for local artists to show their wares. And we have 30 artists every um, second Saturday of the month in May through October. And it's not the same 30. You know, we try to um, bring new people in all the time so that it's a good opportunity for a wide variety of arts and people. So, yeah, back in 97, there was no meat at the market. There was no cheese at the market. Um, Those were things that came on. There was um, one prepared food vendor. Now the prepared food vendors, it's really an extension of the values of the market because in the selection process for them, one of the preferences is that they use local farm product. And so you see folks like Muddy Fork Farm buying their wheat from one of the farm vendors. And, um, you know, and it goes on, you know, Almost all of the prepared food vendors at least buy some product from the farm vendors. And so I think that is really cool. And it gives, it also 
puts that notion in customers' minds mm-hmm. that um, the opportunities where they lie for um, really focusing on local and seasonal food. I think we can, you know, hear everything you're saying, see how far we've come as a local food movement, really pat ourselves on the back. We're really connected to the local system with this farmer's market. We're trying to live sustainably as a community. But as someone who's on the inside, tell us where we can improve. Where are the holes in what we're doing right now? Well, right now, Indiana is importing 90% of the food us Hoosiers eat. So there's one darn big hole. I would guess this is from a report that the Indiana State Department of Health commissioned two years ago. I would guess Bloomington fares a little better, but there's a lot, a lot of opportunity, both for customers and for farmers, to really keep some of that money in our local economies that 90% of the food is about $14.5 billion that's leaving the state. Um, And Indiana's a great growing state. I mean, yeah, here we are, Mm -hmm. you know, in in the heartland, and most of our food's coming from elsewhere. So, yeah, there's incredible opportunity. I think for people who are inclined to making food from scratch, you know, it's the farmer's market's there. You can buy pretty much what you need year-round if you're, you know, open to really focusing on what's available and in season. And that's, I think, paradigm shift for some people who, you know, start with a recipe and say, okay, you know, well, maybe I can find this at the market as opposed to now, like, looking at the market and going, okay, what can I make with what's available? So I think making that that shift will make a big difference. And then, really, um, farm communities have have really broken down. Where I live right now, when I moved there 15 years ago, my neighbors were almost all family. And when it was time to hay, you know, they all hayed to the haying was done. You know, it was definitely this cooperative effort. And that's the traditional way. And, you know, and there were close by facilities to bring your grains to. And there were places that were really open to buying local food more so than they are now. So rebuilding that infrastructure and that culture in farm communities is really important. You know, you see when when a farmer has an illness and they don't have a support network, like it can just be devastating to a farm. You know, my my parents both grew up on farms in Holland and recently I was talking with my mom and my cousin, one of my cousins is on the dairy farm that my mom grew up on. So it's still in the family. And he had an extended illness. And they have programs in place where people come to help to support a farmer. And it's, you know, it's something that's free. But to ensure that, you know, something like an illness doesn't end up in a tragedy for the farm. What do we do? How do we rebuild farm systems? (laughs) People are moving to the cities. I'm just one consumer who buys, you know, $30 worth of grocery every week. I feel like this is a problem that's beyond my pay grade, so to speak. 
But that is really part of the solution right there. I mean, you are already part of it. Um, Wendell Berry says eating is an agricultural act. And so for all of us customers, shopping local, when you go to a restaurant, you know, looking for what they have local or you know, going to the restaurants that say, you know, they're buying local produce and asking, okay, what's local on the menu today? Probably for most of us, a lot of the food we eat is in restaurants or not at home. And so, yeah, have to go beyond just what we're preparing. And there are groups like the Local Growers Guild who are um, currently working on um, a system for aggregating farm product, which I think could have tremendous benefits to the farmers and kind of also that rebuilding of um, farm communities. And I'm not exactly sure where they're at with this, but the concept as it's played out in other places includes where farmers you know, contract with this organization. Oftentimes it's a co-op. And they bring their product together because an individual farmer may not have enough to, you know, serve a Whole Foods in Chicago, but maybe five farmers coming together could supply all the Swiss chard that that store needs. Something like that is the, the general concept. I've heard that called food hub. Is that what you're talking about? Yes, local food, food hubs hub. is the term that's frequently used. You were talking a little bit there about how we get a lot of our food from restaurants. Mm-hmm. The first piece of music we're going to play that you brought in is about cooking at home and specifically your experience canning mm-hmm. with Carrie Newcomer. You guys canned together. Can you tell us about that day? Sure. So I've been... Uh, growing food, well, most of my life, but um, moved back to Bloomington in the mid-90s and, um, you know, right away started started gardening. And uh, uh, anyone who gardens knows there's a point in time where the kitchen counters are covered up in tomatoes. <laughs> and so so I started, been canning with family and friends for, for a long time and kind of make this salsa canning event. And um, last year after it, Carrie, uh, Carrie sent me a song that was inspired by that day. And um, so, yeah. Well, let's take a listen. This is Carrie Newcomer's The Work of Our Hands. Today while it rained I washed the jars Then I lit a flame Set the water to start And at the end of the day Lined up the cooling seal Twelve pints of spice peach jam Twenty jars of two beans canned From an old recipe That my mother gave to me Cause it's good to put a little bit by But when the late snows fly All that love so neatly canned By the work of our hands Music there by Carrie Newcomer That was the work of our hands Music that was inspired by a day of canning With our guest on WFIU's Profiles today Marsha Veldman
Thanks so much. This has been such a great time chatting with you. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. You can speak to this next question from two angles, one as a grower, one as the coordinator of the farmer's market. Talk about the difficulties for small local farmers as they're trying to get their food to local tables? There's quite a few challenges in that. You know, one, we talked a little bit about just the unpredictability of weather, and you just never know from season to season how a particular crop is going to fare, you know. So one year, say you plant an acre of sweet potatoes, and you have, like, way more than you you know, can use and um, or sell. And, uh, and then the next year you plant that same amount and you're running out in October. So, yeah, it's, it's very unpredictable um, crops. And then when you start talking about perishable items, that gets even more tricky because, you know, with something like sweet potatoes, well, you can sell them the next week and, you know, come up with other game plans. When you're talking about tomato, you've got a short window to get it to where it needs to be. And inevitably, you're going to have times where the plants are at their most productive and all of a sudden you're kind of like, woo, I've got a whole bunch of green beans. (laughs) So there's that aspect. And then we did also talk a little bit about customer expectations. Well, I think this area has changed remarkably, at least here in Bloomington in the last few years, where um, customers aren't always looking for perfection in produce. I mean, you know, the reality is not everything you harvest is going to be perfectly unblemished, you know. Yeah, customer expectations in that regard are changing somewhat, but also in their looking at it from a different perspective and, you know, um, wanting to focus more on seasonality and not, you know, looking for sweet corn in May. Um, yeah, that they, that they kind of get that. Mm-hmm. Another, I guess, challenge is um, for the growers who are wholesaling is it can be pretty unpredictable. You know, you can have an account with a restaurant, Unfortunately, restaurants do come and go or, you know, their business fluctuates. So that can be challenging. Um, I've heard of people who've, you know, had pretty steady business with a specific grocery store and a manager changes and all of a sudden everything's different. Regulations can be challenging and, you know, I'm I'm not anti-regulation by any (laughs) means because I think it's important for food safety that we do have good sound regulations, but all too often they aren't scale appropriate, so they are more focused on these big, huge produce farms and not on small-scale farms like the ones that are selling at the farmer's market. The, uh, you know, subsidies for agribusness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not just commodity crops. I mean, when oil is subsidized the way it is, that 
means that, you know, petrochemicals are subsidized and um, it means transportation is subsidized. All of these are um, for a small local farmer who is not as dependent on that, makes it challenging. Labor practices, you know, when we have people working in our fields for very, very little, it's hard to compete with that. So, yeah, there are, there are quite a few challenges that um, small farmers face, and it's amazing they keep going. Keep going. You know? It's amazing all these aspects of our food that sometimes we don't think about. The transportation to get it places, the people who pick it in the fields. I bet a lot of people out there, myself included, don't think about that as I'm biting into a tomato that I've gotten at a big box grocery store. Right. You know, I think for me... Eating is really a pretty intimate act. I mean, I mean, really, you are taking in sun, soil, water, very much immersing yourself in your food. It's becoming a part of you. And I love the connectedness of knowing where my food came from. It, it just, yeah, it makes a meal feel more special when I'm like, oh, yeah, and these tomatoes came from such and such. And, you know, knowing the people who raised it, it makes it, um, makes it feel special to have a meal. We were talking a lot of business in the first part of the show. Let's go a little bit to the personal aspect. When did you start growing food? When did you realize that, you know, this is how I want to live my life? How I want to live my life is always evolving. But as far as when I started growing food, that was, I was pretty darn young. Um, as I mentioned earlier, both my parents immigrated from Holland in the um, early 50s, and they had both grown up on farms. And uh, my dad, when he first got here, was a migrant laborer and then um, then worked at a convent as the grounds keeper and then later um, kind of a crop sharer in southern Michigan. And then they moved on to um, starting a business. I come from a large family. I've got six siblings. And so we always had a large vegetable garden growing up. And of my siblings, I was the only one who like actually really loved working in the garden. It just, uh, it captivated me. I'll admit, um, it took me a while to recover from harvesting green beans. I just started growing green beans again a couple <laughs> years ago because that I did a little more of than I wanted to. But for the most part, yeah, just growing food was something I loved. And I I remember I had a neighbor who was, um, had moved into the area from the south and had been a farmer and um, being at his house and uh, he had um, coxcomb flowers, the the big flower that looks a lot like the comb of a rooster. They're beautiful and I was just captivated by it. I had never seen it before and and he asked me to hold out my hand and kind of tipped um, the flower over and some seeds fell into my hand. And that was like my first realization that I didn't have to buy seeds in a packet, that they didn't come out of packets. That, yeah, this like kind of circle of life was like, woo. I've been growing since I was really young and 
We didn't necessarily grow organically, but primarily that was the case. I'm sure we pulled out seven once in a while when the bean beetles were bad. But then um, in college, I um, had a community garden plot, and that's when I started, you know, really focusing on organic growing, and that was in the early 80s. And um, so after college, I uh, spent some time in California working in environmental education, but just always loved Bloomington and got to where I really wanted to put some roots down. I wanted to have apple trees. And <laughs> and so uh, in the mid-90s, I moved back to Bloomington and um, with friends started Meadowlark Farm. Pete Johnson sells at the market now. He and his wife um, worked with them really closely and um, he um, initially farmed at my house um, until 2004 when he and his wife bought their own farm. It's Lost Pond Farm. Sure, A lot of yeah. people know them from the market. So, yeah, and at the time when um, when Pete and his wife were able to to buy their own farm, I actually had an opportunity to decrease my hours working for the city. I was working full-time and I had the opportunity to switch to a 25-hour work week and took took that opportunity. <laughs> and so it actually, you know, was a really nice transition. And so that's when I really started, I guess, um, playing a role beyond um, learning a lot from Pete and getting lots of good food for my labor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and people can buy your food at the winter market. Is that right? Your event yeah. at the winter market? Yeah, event at the winter market. And then there's a Wednesday market over at Blooming Foods East that, you know, starts – usually when the sweet corn is abundant and uh, runs through October. When I talk to people who gardened or farmed as a kid with their families, they a lot of them say, I needed a break. I had to take a step back. I worked too hard as a kid, and I hated it. And then they eventually come back to it a little bit later in life. But it sounds like you've just had it in your blood this whole time. I have. Yeah, it sometimes feels a little bit like an addiction, (laughs) but for the most part, I think it's a healthy addiction. Although sometimes when I'm standing up from the ground and it's taking me a while to straighten out my knees, I kind of wonder, is the extent I'm doing a healthy addiction? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we mentioned your bio earlier in the show. It's the long bio of all the groups that you work with. Just to recap, Green Drinks, Green Sanctuary Task Force, Hoosier Hills Food Bank, Hilltop Garden Center. I'm sure there's more that's not even included. Talk about your extra work with these organizations beyond the city of Bloomington and beyond your farm. What does that add to your food life? Some of them add probably not such good things to my food life. I'm just thinking, like green drinks, it's wonderful. But I've eaten a lot of spinach artichoke fat <laughs> green drinks. and it doesn't sound like a bad thing. <laughs> no, no, it's a really good thing, especially at the Upland. They yeah. make it well. And then, yeah, the Green Sanctuary Task Force definitely has working with it uh my thought for food has expanded, but sometimes we meet right after the second service, and that means I'm eating a cliff bar during the meeting. <laughs> but it's um, at the Unitarian Universalist Church. Yeah, so the Green Sanctuary Task Force is um, 
yes, a task force within the Unitarian Universalist Church of Bloomington. And we got together in 2005, really inspired by Reverend Marianne Macklin's she she does an annual science sermon, kind of the top stories in science from the previous year. And a number of those top stories were about climate change. And she suggested that, you know, some of us get together, whoever was interested, and um, talk about climate change and see what it is we wanted to do. So it kind of, you know, started a very informal, uh, you know, are we going to be a study group? You know, what is it that we want to do? And then we found that the Unitarian Universalist Association, which is this national organization, um, had a program called the Green Sanctuary Program. And it's kind of a 12-step program. (laughs) Yeah, it laid out four categories that you had to work in. And, you know, it was pretty intensive. Um, so it took us two years to go from really doing the energy and environmental audits to kind of give us a baseline and give us an idea of where our strengths were and where we needed to work to actually being accredited. And so we were accredited in 2007, but, you know, that just meant that piece was done. We we do joke that, um, you know, we're a task force, we have, you know, a definitive job, and that is to end climate disruption. (laughs) So once it's done, then we'll all retire from it. We're talking about the Unitarian Universalist Church, so this is a good lead into that. The first line in your bio says you're an advocate for food justice. Mm -hmm. What is food justice? Food justice for me, kind of, I guess, encompasses food from the time it's being grown in the fields to when it's on our plates. And it involves creating a healthful place for people who are growing the food, you know, so that the people who are raising the food we eat aren't exposed to chemicals that um, are harmful to them, that they refuse receive a fair wage for the labor that they do, and continues on to that healthy food is accessible to everyone, that that's a right to healthy food. And it's really unfortunate that where we are right now in food policy in the United States is that Corn and soybeans, these big commodity crops, are so heavily subsidized that it makes things that are made with corn syrup, for example, very inexpensive, but they're very bad for you. So it's like, you know, you can buy a two-liter soda. I don't know. I haven't done it in a while. I'm guessing 99 cents (laughs) is probably the going rate. You know, 99 cents for a two-liter soda bottle, highly processed has nothing in it for you. And yet, you know, a bag of apples costs several dollars. That That's just wrong. It should be, uh, yeah, we as a country should set policy that works to get healthy food to people. That is a, a food. I think uh, Michael Pollan said it should be the food bill, not the farm bill. Congress just said that it It is going to work on the farm bill to get us a new farm bill soon. From your perspective, 
as a grower, as an organizer of a local farmer's market, as an advocate for food justice, what would you like, ideal scenario, what would you like the 2013 Farm Bill to look like? Yeah, the the Farm Bill, it is, you know, so much more than a Farm Bill because it encompasses like food stamps, the food stamp program, it includes WIC, includes so much. But I would certainly love to see more incentives for sustainable agriculture. I think we, you know, we need to see an end. And I don't mean in a dramatic sort of way, but maybe a scaling down of the money that goes into the commodity crops. I think ethanol is unfortunately pretty much a sham. <laughs> um, you know, it takes the amount of energy it takes to raise the crops for ethanol is pretty darn close to the value that we get out in energy. And so it's just so incredibly wasteful and has been so disruptive to food prices. And in the United States, people feel it. But around the world, you know, they're really feeling it. In other places where people are, you know, where bread is a staple, and all of a sudden, you know, the price of wheat is soaring because, you know, people are switching from growing wheat to growing corn because of ethanol. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a big question. Yeah. We seem to be successful in our little corner of the world here, local farmers getting local food to local customers. If the farm bill could increase one part of a farmer's life, what could you use money from the government for as a grower? What would be the most beneficial? You know, as a grower, I guess I would rather see that increasing access for low-income people. You know, it would be fabulous if the Farm Bill included money for doubling SNAP benefits across the country at farmers' markets. It's such a win-win scenario because that money does go to the farmer. And it means that the person, you know, the food stamp recipient is buying healthy, nutrient-dense local food. So it's, you know, that would be fabulous. Right now, there's only a handful of markets around the country that are able to to do this doubling of benefits, you know, the ones that have been fortunate to secure funding, but it's hard to come by. So yeah, I guess I would rather see that end of the equation worked on. And the, you know, as the amount of focus on the commodity crops decreased and therefore, you know, the, the cost of highly processed food would probably rise, making more healthy food more competitive for, for consumers. That's an interesting way to think about that. Yeah. Well, that, you know, you're talking about food stamps. The prevailing wisdom is that's why we didn't get a farm bill last season. It's because Congress was fighting over how to deal with food stamps. Uh, I don't really have a question here. I'm just, you know, sort of shaking my head at thinking that that's ever going to be a possibility. You know, in Indiana, more money 
comes out of the farm bill for commodity crops than for food stamp benefits. That seems wrong to me. Well, we'll see what happens, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> we're almost reaching the end of our time. We've got one more piece of music that we're excited to play. But put on your farmer's market coordinator hat one more time for me. For people looking at the Bloomington Farmer's Market as sort of the goal that they want to achieve in their community, give some tips, tricks, advice. You know, I think... It kind of depends where your starting point is. We we get a lot of inquiries from people who are interested in um, starting farmers markets in their communities or trying to build on the markets they have. And while I think there's a lot of good things that can be learned from our community market, one, I think it does need to be kind of specific to the, the needs of a community. And I think this market didn't start this way. And that's important to remember. It started with 23 vendors in Third Street Park, the park right behind the police station there. So that's where it started. And it's taken time to grow. And I think that's something that um, people starting in market need to understand. I think really involving the community in the process of getting it going, but also in the the market days. One of the markets that I think does a fabulous job of that is the Orleans Market, just south of here. You know, they have, you know, the school band comes to play. So, of course, all the parents come down with the school band to play at the market. They have, like, a, just a jam session where some person leads a tent of music and people come. And just have a lot of different clever ways to bring the community to the market. And then once they're there, I'm sure they are buying <laughs> produce at the market. And, um, and that market also emphasizes a lot the crafts and the prepared foods. Um, because we can, we like to really emphasize the farm vendor aspect of it. But that's not necessarily the best place for everybody to start. Sometimes you need to grow it. Patience. Patience. Like <laughs> yes. Patience. Farming and farmers markets are both about patience. <laughs> Well, shame on me. This entire hour, I've forgotten to congratulate you because you were awarded Woman of the Year for 2013 by the City of Bloomington. Congratulations. Thank you. What Thank did that mean much. to get that award? When Toby Strout called me and told me that I was selected, I was really surprised, shocked. It it was not on my radar. And I think my first thing was, Really? <laughs> Then, you know, then I was really, it really is an honor. And I, you know, so realize that it's about the work that I'm doing. And the work that I'm doing is not just me doing it. I get to work with so many incredible people and organizations. And so I just think it made me love Bloomington all the more because it's a community that values sustainability and farming and and people who are kind of working in the trenches and I love that about Bloomington so but it yeah it was really an honor yeah you are definitely working in the trenches in a lot of different <laughs> ways Marsha Veldman it's been such a pleasure Marsha Veldman is an advocate for food justice and security sustainability and community development you probably know her from her work with the Bloomington Community Farmers Market 
perhaps you've seen her at the Hoosier Hills Food Bank, Mother Hubbard's Cupboard, or as part of the Green Sanctuary Task Force at the Unitarian Universalist Church. She also grows food in her copious amounts of free time at Metal Ark Farm. And thank you so much for coming in today. This conversation has been awesome. Thanks, Annie. I really enjoyed it. One more song. This is by Malcolm Doglish, Peace of Wild Things. Can you just give us a quick little bit of information about why we're playing this? This song is based on a poem by Wendell Berry. And Wendell Berry is like up there, way, way high in my, you know, unbelievably wonderful human beings who are so on about farming and sustainability and just seems to have a heart of gold. And and I guess for me, one of the things that specifically called me to this is that I have always turned to to the woods and to the fields um, as you know my place to kind of um, find solace when I'm having a hard time or um, rejuvenate myself. And you know, this really about that. Perfect way to end the show today. Peace of Wild Things music by Malcolm Douglas. You've been listening to Profiles here on WFIU Bloomington. I'm Annie Corrigan. The program you just heard was recorded in May of 2013. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.